This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line, but rarely do successful people get from point A to point B taking the most direct route. Host Jeffrey Klein speaks to a diverse mix of people to explore their story of success and the dots connected along the way. Thank you for listening. Here's your host, Jeffrey. I feel very lucky to have such a great relationship with my dad, Judge Klein, and even luckier to be able to have him as my final guest of the season. So enjoy. Thanks. My guest today is Judge Richard Klein, who currently serves as an arbitrator, mediator, and trial and appellate consultant with the Dispute Resolution Institute headed by Harris Bach. Prior to joining, Judge Klein served with distinction for 36 years on the bench. Judge Klein served eight years on the Intermediate Appellate Court, the Superior Court of Pennsylvania, where he decided appellate matters touching almost every aspect of life, law, and commerce. He served as a trial judge in the Common Pleas Court of Philadelphia for 28 years and was the youngest judge in the state's history. In addition to his judicial responsibility, Judge Klein has chaired many committees to improve the justice system, including serving as founding co-chair of the Pennsylvania Bar Plain English Committee, the Philadelphia Bar's Committee of Alternative Dispute Resolution, and he currently serves as president of the Futures Commission on Justice in the 21st Century. A frequent author, educator, and lecturer, Judge Klein served for 15 years as an adjunct professor at Temple University's Law School. He is co-author of the West publication book, Trial Communication Skills. Judge Klein is the previous winner of the Pennsylvania Bar Association's Sir Francis Bacon Award, given to an individual who excels in the area of alternative dispute resolution. A a A Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Amherst College, Judge Klein graduated with honors from Harvard Law School. A 50 plus year member of the Musicians Union, he is a jazz drummer and band leader for the Reading Terminals. His most important role, however, is that of a grandfather to his six grandchildren, including my two daughters and my son. Please welcome my father, Judge Klein. Glad to be with you. So I like to start at the beginning. Where were you born and what did your parents do for a living? Uh, I was born in Philadelphia and I went into my father's business as he was a judge for um, five years before I was born. Uh, My mother was a teacher uh, and uh, a stay-at-home housewife for most of my life. So growing up, you know, I know how important um, your father's role as a judge was. Uh, Did you think early on when you were a kid that you wanted to become a judge or did you have other kind of lofty aspirations of being, you know, a football star or something like that? Well, it depends when you, when you start. Um, uh, I remember I thought, yeah, I'd love to be a football star, but it was a rainy day. We were playing, we were scrimmaging. I was on the scrubs of the football team and the 220 pound uh, fullback came through with his arms crossed and hit me and knocked me into the ground. And as the water was seeping around my uh, hip pads, the coach chewed him out for blocking me wrong. I kind of figured then that the national football league was not in my career. I always thought ultimately I'd go into business and make a lot of money, but you don't always go the way you think you're going to go. If only, anyway, we can discuss that later. Um, so wanting to be in business and, and make lots of money, was there someone who was a role model growing up who was a business person or who did you look up to? 
No, most of the people that were sort of my mentors were lawyers who sort of switched into that field. Uh, one was a great guy who I worked with originally, a guy named Don Cohan, who was who my father mentored for a while, who um, uh, he actually was the oldest man to win a medal in sailing in anything. He was a sailor at the Olympics. And he probably did all right because he there's a, a dorm dedicated to him at the college at Amherst College where you and I both went. So I must have made a few a few quid as we great like guy. Uh, so obviously I'm a little obsessed with storytelling. So who was a great storyteller when you were growing up, and kind of what made them great? Well, I never thought about it, uh, uh, but I until I hear your podcast, it was probably your grandfather and my father. Uh, and it was just so natural. I didn't think of him as a storyteller. Why, why do you think he was so good? Well, he was a very bright guy and interested in, interested in a lot of things and, and liked to share them. Yeah, you know, it's funny. One of the things I, I talk about is that being interested in lots of things makes you interesting as opposed to the reverse. People thinking you're interesting um, but it's actually having the curiosity and having interest in other things that makes you interesting. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's almost more important to be interested than it is to be interesting. Well, they did uh, a study about networking and they did exit interviews of people and they found that if I was you know, networking with you and I asked you lots of questions and then afterwards I said, what do you think of uh, Jeffrey? And you'd say, he was really interesting. Even though I didn't share very much about me, it was about the fact that I was interested. So I definitely think there's something. Yeah, there. I wish I did that more. Anyway, <laughs> work in progress, I like to say. Um, what was your first paying job? I got $12 for reporting on a French Central football game for the then evening bulletin. And my first real job was a summer job where I was aroused about on a building job where I actually learned how to drive a shift car by sh stripping the gears of the pickup truck. You strip the gears while you, that's how you learn by destroying. Well, that's how you learn what not to do. <laughs> right. Yeah, sometimes that's the way you learn. Um, so, you know, your, your father was a judge for over 50 years and had been a judge for many years. At what point did you think or decide that maybe becoming a judge would be, would be a good thing for you and that you'd enjoy it? And, and was that a hard decision to follow in his footsteps being as distinguished as he was? Uh, I don't know whether that's a decision or whether it just happened. Um, you know, my, I, my, my idea of being a corporate lawyer and then going into a business sort of came when I got totally hooked on politics. And uh, our neighbor, Ray Broderick, was all of a sudden the candidate for lieutenant governor when somebody died. And I got involved in the campaign. And then I was full time in the campaign of a uh, Princeton grad and Chamber of Commerce head Thatcher Longstreth, who ran against our former police commissioner, Frank Rizzo. And you know, there I think I wanted to be mayor at some point. But unfortunately, we lost. My practice had gone down the tubes. And for a bunch of reasons, there were a whole bunch of new judgeships that were created. Uh, and uh, I wound up getting one of them because of my political activity. And I figured, what the heck? It's not a, it's not a lifetime commitment. Uh, well, I'll try you it, know. you know, uh, who knows where you go from there. And then unfortunately I liked it. And how much, what, 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 so when you, this opportunity to become a judge came up and I know at the time you were the youngest lawyer ever to become a judge. Uh, breaking, I broke my father's record. Exactly. Breaking. What did he say about you becoming a judge? Well, my father was really a pretty terrific guy, uh, as I'm sure you know. 
I mean, he was he was a uh, very esteemed judge on the probate court, the orphans court. Uh, he uh, engineered the merger of the Einstein Medical Center. He was chairman of the board of Temple University during the 60s, a turbulent period, and, and, and with the president engineered the state relationship where he maintained its independence, but still got substantial bucks from the state. But he never made me feel that way. And other successful people sometimes do. Uh, he was just, you know, so, so my dad's a judge, you know. And, but did he, he must have had an opinion about the fact that you were either thinking about becoming a judge or when you became a judge. No, he basically supported me where I wanted to be. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't doing anything ridiculous like going full time being a jazz drummer. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he he didn't he didn't push me either way. And do you think um, when you became a judge, and obviously you liked it, did that change your political aspirations? Because you know, once you were on the bench for a while, I mean, it seemed like you kind of have a long term security there. Um, did you ever think about going back into any sort of political you know, aspirations? Uh, other than the fact that after 25 years, I was kind of burning out and I made the effort to go uh, to the to, to go to the appellate court, which in Pennsylvania is an elected official. Uh, it just didn't happen that way. Yeah, I, I love the stat uh, when you won the appellate that you had a million votes um, so that <laughs> course you know i'm sure that has to do with the platform and things but but the fact that a million people voted for you is always something yeah, a million people expressed their confidence in me who had no idea who i was or what the job was that i was running for uh now i know that you know a part of one job that you've had is uh being a educational leader for uh, a group that does travels and you've gone lots and lots of places and you've been a judge you know for years and years is there a place that you kind of find surprising that you found yourself, whether it was a location that you never thought when you were young, oh my God, I'd end up here or talking to a specific person? Actually, I was thinking about, uh, about that. And yes, in 1995, it's how I got there. It was so surprising. In 1995, I met the entire constitutional court of South Africa including one of the lawyers that represented Mandela and Abby Hoffman, who got his, his arm blown off as an anti-apartheid activity. And the way it happened was just bizarre. I was, you know, I was planning, I was leading as an education leader for a legal study tour there. And I wound up in the early days on, I guess, what we call a listserv today, which is primarily university professors. Uh, actually, I talked to one of them by Zoom just a couple of days ago. And I asked the question, I said, I can read the Constitution. What happens in an automobile accident? And I got a letter back from a young guy. Let me, I forget his name. Let's call him John, who said, who told me about it and said, gee, it's a shame that you're not going to, your trip's going the way it is, because I'm arguing the finals of the moot court competition in Peter Maritzburg. And you're, but I said, they changed the trip. I'm going to be there. So we were in Durban, which is about a 45 minute drive away. And I drove there on the wrong side of the road on the wrong side of the car in a rainstorm. I'm lucky I didn't get killed. And as it turned out, I found out that one of the constitutional judge, court judges, uh, who was the first African American black, I can't call her African American. They're all, Af they're all Africans there, uh, there. And she had spent several years recently in a third floor walk up in, in West Philadelphia, getting a master's from Penn law. 
So I got the dean of the Penn Law School to write her a congratulatory letter. And while I was there, I gave it to her. She then invited me down to the Constitutional Court, uh, which fortunately got there was a continuance. And I was able to go in and, and meet everybody. The other thing weird about that is I got a call from one of the, a friend of one of my former law clerks is, do you know this guy, John? I said, yeah, I've been dealing with him on the Internet. I actually planning to go visit him and his family. He said, well. His girlfriend is wanted to spend some time in the United States and is uh, my nanny. So I wound up meeting her, getting a picture taken with, with me with my arm around her. And when I went to him, he didn't know I presented him with that picture. But it's just so strange, the coincidences that affect you one way or another. Yeah, I also, also think, you know, in terms of success, how much of it is, you know, hard work and how much of it is, you know, luck and a, and I think, you know, it, it's a combination for sure. I, I like to, uh, I refer to things what I call smart luck. Dumb luck is when you're walking down the street and you pick up $5 and you put it in your pocket. Smart luck is you want to be an actor, take some acting classes. So that if you do certain things, you find, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you are. I think that's definitely been true for me. Well, you can't figure out exactly which road you're going to go. Okay. But if you're hardworking and persistent, you're going to get somewhere good. Uh, you definitely instilled that in me. Uh, so uh, again, you talk about, you know, your father being a good storyteller. You know, I have very fond memories of you guys kind of at, at the dining room table on opposite ends, swapping stories back and forth. Do you think that being good at telling stories is a skill that can do, be developed or you either have it or you don't? Well, I think I think of it as being a trial lawyer, for example, which I think you would have been good at, by the way. Uh, I mean, the, the, the history shows that. But some people have significant natural talent. There are a half dozen lawyers that I know in Philadelphia that I've seen that just have this great talent. However, uh, if you don't work at it and learn it, you'll never get anywhere. For example, I would think in professional sports for every, you know, obviously a lot of people like me <laughs> and like you don't have the talent to get there. But of the people that do, I, my guess would be that there are four or five for each one who makes it, who just didn't put in the work to get there. And it's kind of like storytelling. You can get to be good. Um, I mean, there's a, a great tape uh, by a guy named Younger, Irving Younger, for law school students, how to cross-examine. And he says, I'm not trying to teach you to be a good cross-examiner. I'm trying to keep you from being an abominable cross-examiner. So you know, if you work, you can, you won't be a bad storyteller, but there are people that just have the flair. Yeah. I think one of the things I was talking about this uh, with someone earlier, which is we see, you know, wonderful presenters, wonderful speakers, and they make it look effortless. But the reality is that a lot of them, even the best ones who have a lot of natural talent work really hard to prepare and practice and then come across in that natural, you know, in a way so that even those who have natural ability to get to that next level need to put in the work. Well, of course, there's a great fear. I mean, I think when they do the studies, one of the fears that everybody has is talking in public. I think I got over there when my jazz group got a commission to conduct educational service uh, programs in 40 different South Jersey high schools. And, you know, I would talk about how what syncopation was and then the band would, would demonstrate. But I'm talking there to several hundred at a time high school students. If you can get through that, you can get through anything. 
Uh, yeah, my, my line now is if you, if I can survive twin teenage daughters, I can survive anything. Yep. And they're wonderful, by the way, as you know. Uh, I'm curious, you know, I, I teach at Temple University as an adjunct and you're an adjunct. I'm curious if you, and I know you speak to a lot of the younger people, if someone was in college and they said to you, I'm interested in pursuing law, what would your... It, would you try and encourage it, discourage it? What would you say about the kind of state of law and, and pursuing that? I said, how about business school? <laughs> well, you don't want to go to law school because you can't stand the sight of blood and don't want to be a doctor. Um, there's such a glut. Well, it's not as bad as it used to be. There's such a glut of lawyers that you really have to do it uh, for a, a purpose. Uh, in other words, one of our one of our, our friends was running a uh, a nightclub, and he became very good at dealing with the zoning laws and all the rest of it. Now, for him, the law degree will get him really where he wants to go to be able to use that talent. It's you've got to either have a drive to do it, okay, or some need to do it for a specialty. But I don't think it's a good idea if you just say, "Well, I, I really don't want to go to work now. What can I do for the next three years?" Yeah, it's not, it's not a good choice as a default. Like, I can't think of what else to do. Let me go to law school. Yeah, that's right. Uh, if you had pursued a career in law, what other career do you think you would have either liked to pursue or, you know, potentially have done? Well, I think I mentioned before, I probably would have, would have gone into business. Uh, I never thought about it too much. I'm really a pretty good judge of musical talent. So I never would have gone into music full time. Um, I might've taught, I don't know. I, I mean, I was pretty much geared toward the law politics. Well, I mean, politics, um, government kind of thing um, and business, I thought thing. And I really didn't get too far aside. I mean, I didn't want to be a mountain climber or a guy or, or a ski instructor or anything like that. Uh, so I, when I talk to people and, you know, being a judge for 36 years, by most standards, people would say you, you're successful, but I'm curious how you would define success. First of all, I think you have to enjoy what you're doing. And for the most part, I really did. Uh, as somebody says that it shouldn't be like it's a job that you're doing. I think that was one of your last, pod I think Donnie Macauer said that in one of, re in one of your recent podcasts. Um, the other thing is, is to me, and I guess I get this from my father, it's important to make a contribution to the community and to other people. I mean, I really thought it was important to take interns with me and mentor people to do education programs, uh, to contribute to the planet that we live in. I mean, many of us are lucky to have been born, you know, in the United States with, you know, good parents and the rest of it. And there's an obligation to give back. Uh, it's interesting. You know, one, one of the thoughts, uh, I guess the lines I've heard is, which is if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. Right. Uh, and that's something, interestingly, you said you got that from your father. When I talk about, you know, my career and, and, and if I'm talking to these students is that it's, 
you've instilled in at least in me and probably is that you have to want to get up every day and go to work, you know, otherwise. Well, maybe not every day, but most days. <laughs> All right. There right. are days. <laughs> most days. We'll say most days. Uh, what inspires you? A project where I can do something like recently resurrecting the futures commission that inspires me to get there, to do it and to try and make a difference for what's going to happen uh, to the justice system in the future. Now there are a lot of things you can do. You know, I'd like to save the uh, seals too, but my expertise has been in the justice system. So I think that that's where I'm best to help people resolve disputes quickly and without pain as much as possible. Now you've done a lot of things and learned a lot um, over the many years of your career if you could go back and give a piece of advice to your 21-year-old self, what would it be? Well, one of the things I think I did and one of the things I wish I had done better, uh, the advice I would give myself is if you want to do something, you've got to go for it. You've got to keep at it. You've got to be persistent. Each time I got on the bench, it took me three times to get through the election properly. The other thing is, and is to try and prioritize what you're doing so that you do the things that are, have the most impact rather than the things that you really like to do because you do them well. That's what I think I wish I had done better. Oh, you know, can't go back and do it again. I think you did all right from my perspective. Um, well, oh, and, and, you know, one thing that I learned and I, I don't even think about it is family first. Family is incredibly important. I definitely believe that and, and, and uh, definitely think I've inherited that from, from you. In Several the, generations. Yes. Uh, in terms of, you know, you, you just explained that you're resurrecting the Futures Commission. What do you think is the next trend in the, the legal system? Well, nobody can predict the future. Um, I think that things are going to make a big difference. Uh, I think that uh, the... The increase in technology, artificial intelligence is going to affect the practice of law. Um, I think there will be continued kickback against the costs and bureaucracy of, uh, of um, litigation. I think that the, I don't know what's going to happen with all these huge law firms and all these people, you know, pushing papers around. Uh, one of the, yeah, something's going to happen that we don't know about. In other words, Suppose they really have self-driving cars. Uh, what's that going to do to all the lawyers who are handling personal injury cases? Something's going to happen, which is why I think it's important that you have flexibility in, in what, what you do. I mean, I don't know how many careers. They say that you're going to have 13 different jobs and seven different careers. I, I know you're well on the way to, <laughs> to, to that number. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, as someone who saw both my father and grandfather pretty much in the same career most of their life and then growing, you know, as I became a professional hearing that you can, you know, there's lots of pivots and changes and, and uh, you know, I, I often quote John Lennon, life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. Absolutely. Um, and so that you can have all the planning in the world, but, you know, things, you know, get in the oh, way. My senior, my senior thesis in, in law school was income tax. The courses I never took were tort cases, you know, personal injury, things like that, and criminal law. I spent most of my career doing that. Uh, and in terms of, you know, your career, your, uh, 
still very active in lots of different ways. What, what's the next thing that you're excited about in, in what you're doing? I think the Futures Commission is, is, is we've got a shot to make a difference so that you don't have things happen uh, like everybody knows that people got sick working with asbestos. And we saw that it took 20 years and we saw all these cases that were going to come and nobody did anything about it until it hit us. Actually, in the fall of 2019, one of the judicial think tanks said, you know, one of these days there may be a virus that they don't have a, a, a cure for. And it'd be really difficult in the justice system because you've got so much interpersonal contact and nobody did anything. What? So what do you think compels people to take action for things that aren't an immediate problem, but to actually go, because I think part of this, the, you know, the instantaneous world we live in now, we seem to only be worried about what happens in the next 10 minutes, you know, let alone longer term. How, how do you get people to rethink about the longer term implications and taking action now for things that are going to help us later? It's very, very difficult. People think things are going to stay the way they are all the time. And they're very uncomfortable thinking of more than that. I think this really said that I'm not, <laughs> I don't want to plagiarize, but I forget who I, who I'm quoting. Uh, it's really hard. Everybody thinks the future is a week from Tuesday. Uh, and well, you know, it, it kind of happened with the pandemic. Now it wasn't quite as bad as it could have been, but I think, George W. Bush, after the 9-11 thing, got concerned about these things and set up the, the group to handle a major crisis and had an action plan and passed it on to Obama and Obama passed it on to Trump. And then it's kind of it dissolved. And when the pandemic hit, it took them like several weeks to realize they had a 65 page playbook that nobody knew where it was. Uh, you know, but they're the kind of things you, you've got to spend a little bit of time thinking as to what's going to come down the pike. Now you can't predict it, but various things are going to happen. And what do you have to do to get there? It, it makes me think also about, uh, I think, a challenge, which is uh, amongst any, you know, uh, crisis or any you know problem in society, which is a lot of people say, well, I can't make a difference, me, one person. And your sort of, you know, commitment to trying to make a difference. And in fact, how, how do you, you know, respond to people like, well, I'm just one person. You can make a difference. You just don't know how much it'll be. It could be some. It'll at least be some, but it could be. You never know. It could be huge. Yeah. And I, and I guess if you don't take a shot, it's clear you won't make a difference. Well, there's a famous quote, uh, you know, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, um, which I think is credited to Wayne Gretzky. But um, well, the other very, the other very uh, astute uh, Western philosopher said, if you don't know where you're going, you might not get there. That was Yogi Berra. Yeah, so, uh, well, that gets us into the first of the nine rapid fire questions. So again, just trying, uh, first thing. So is it better to be a planner or a doer? Well, you have to be a doer. I mean, plans are the greatest things in the world, but if you don't use them to do something, they sit on the shelf and gather dust. Should stories always have happy endings? Be nice if they did, but they don't. Uh, hey. You got to keep going. I lost two elections several times and kept going. Do you have a favorite emoji? Not really. It's it's one of the smiley faces with the glasses. I mean, that's the one I relate to. Uh, if you had to, I, I usually make this question either or. So either if you had to sing a karaoke song, 
what would it be? Or name one of your favorite songs. Because not everyone likes to sing. Well, I'm a huge jazz fan. I guess if I was talking Bill Evans, anything on the, the kind of blue album. Uh, I've made a great contribution to the singing world by not singing. Okay. <laughs> but I did it once and I would love to do it again. Fly, Eagles, fly on the way to victory. I did it right after they won the Super Bowl at the Reading Terminal with a lot of people there. Yes, I think I was there. I think I was there. Yeah. Um, My great fans. Do you have a favorite social media platform? Um, I don't know whether it's a social media platform or not, but if you're talking about those things, I love YouTube. Everything is there. Definitely. It's just definitely considered uh, social media. It's also the second largest search engine online. Oh, it's great. Everything's there. I, you know. Uh, can you name a book that had a lasting impression on you? Uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. It was written many, many years ago, and it's still a very effective book. Uh, and I think because of that, I, I, I funded and pushed all three of my kids to take the course. And they all got the pens for being the best speaker for one of them, and I never did. I think I gave you my pen. You did. I'll give it back if you want it. <laughs> no, I wanted you to have it. I know um, where it is even. <laughs> can you name one of your favorite movies? Do I have to? Can I limit it to one? I you really can give have me a couple. There are three. Okay. Uh, and it happened when, when a professor at Penn saw me at a conference and said, here, tell me the three scenes that were made the most impact to you. And they were all, in, at least a couple of them were in the same movie. Annie Hall is my favorite. There's just so much stuff there. I mean, I guess I related to... Uh, his quote of Groucho Marx in the beginning is that I won't join any club that'll have me as a member. Um, Shawshank Redemption, which I know is one of your favorite that I really liked. And the other thing, which is more obscure is Orfeo Negro or Black Orpheus. It was one of the first films to popularize the, uh, the, the bossa nova. It's a kid from the country comes into the, to Rio for, for a carnival. And it's kind of like the Orpheus and Eurydice thing set, to Rio Carnival. I believe it's gotten a little worn, but I still love that movie. What's one thing you can't live without? Um, well, for those on video, give me one second. Oh, where are they? Uh, for those on video, see the background. <laughs> You're talking about my six grandchildren, but that's probably true to everybody. There are a couple of uh, things also I don't couldn't live without. I don't even know why. Whoops. But one of them is Hershey's Nuggets. And that was it for a long time until I saw the podcast of Donnie Macauer. And now the things that I can't live without are wow. radical superfoods, which instead of drinking diet coke or snapple i drink water with this powder in it now i i mean i i guess it does good and and, and boosts your immune system but at least it, you don't do the bad stuff if you have that it's definitely a, a better replacement and you're getting a lot of nutrients that you wouldn't otherwise get uh if finally if you could be credited with inventing something what would it be and why it would be a self-driving car that is you know uh, emission neutral. And the reason is I want to get it quick enough. So when I can't drive anymore, I can still, still use a car. Yeah. I have that same wish that they, they get an automated car, not because 
I, I want to be able to use it, but so my daughters don't have to learn how to drive. I think I'm going to miss it, unfortunately, as they're all with them. Cars. I'm afraid you will. Yeah, maybe Ethan. Um, so if people want to learn more about you and what you're doing or interested, where, where's the best place for them to go and do that? Um, well, I have my own website that you set up, which is www.judgeklein.com. And the DRI website also has a lot of stuff on it. Uh, unfortunately, I, I forget the... ADRDRI.com. We'll put it in the show notes in any event. Yeah. Uh, well, I you know, always enjoy chatting with my dad, and this has been really special for me. Um, it's, you know, you said family first, which is, you know, something that I feel very fortunate to have the kind of relationship I do with you um, and to continually learn from you, um, but also just enjoy your company. So I want to thank you for being a part of this and thank you for helping us connect the dots. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. Thank you for taking your time to listen to this podcast. Please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform so you don't miss any future episodes. If you could also do me a favor and please leave a review on iTunes, I would really appreciate that. Remember, story matters and is the best way to connect the dots.